This is Do School Better, a podcast for people who want to transform education. My name is Doris Corda, and for the past several years, I've been training educators. Listen to these episodes and hear about some of the extraordinary programs they've created. We call these pioneers the fire starters. See if you can get some ideas that you can implement yourself to change your own practice. In this episode, Dora speaks with Chad Williamson, co-founder of Noble Impact. Chad shares his journey to teaching at the intersection of entrepreneurship and public service. He explains how the Sandy Hook School tragedy has influenced their work around social-emotional learning. Doris and Chad also discuss the importance of leadership when embedding innovation in schools. If you like this podcast, please share it with your network so that we can do school better. Chad, my friend, hello. Doris, how are you? I am so good. I'm talking to you. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm so very excited about this conversation because it's you and of all that you do. Well, I'm, ex- I'm excited too. So we're, I want to talk later about how you and I first connected, but can you please tell our listeners about yourself? Now, that's a trick because this is, this is part of our curriculum. And if I do it wrong, then I would probably get blasted by our students. So really telling you who I am, uh, we challenge our students to start in a chronological approach starting from born and raised. But I right. won't do that. Because, because obviously, that's you know we might not have time for that. You can start with how you were born and raised. I like that. Okay, well, I'll give yeah. it a shot. So I was born in uh, Salem, Ohio, which is a little Quaker town, about an hour outside of Cleveland. Don't really remember much about that because when I was three years old, my dad and mom made the biggest decision of of my life, and they decided to join the United States Air Force. So my dad became the first Quaker chaplain in the Air Force, and my mom was a K-12 teacher, and we moved to San Antonio, Texas in June of 1975. And so that started a, a whole new life for me, right? It changed my trajectory, because from then on out, we moved every two to three years of my life until I was 18 years old, living in Turkey, Alabama, Germany, Texas, Florida, Ohio, And then I ended up going into the Air Force myself when I was 20 years old and spent five years in the Air Force, did physical therapy while I was in the Air Force. So I became a physical therapist assistant, met a really cool guy in the Air Force who was a physical therapist that I worked with. And we started a company, actually, uh, because we had our official PT licenses on the outside. So we would spend all day in the military and camouflage and treat people from 7:30 to 4:30 and then after that we would go outside on the civilian in the civilian sector in Tampa and the surrounding Tampa area and treat people in their homes and do home health so we built a business I got a call one day from my friend after I got out of the air force and she said hey I know you're doing your physical therapy thing but there's an opening at the at the school where I am uh, working called Berkeley Prep there's an opening for a basketball position and I and she knew I loved basketball so I started coaching basketball at Berkeley Prep and thought it would be really easy because I can hold my own at basketball and uh, <laughs> figured that wouldn't be too difficult. And we went one in 15 that year. We were horrible. I had no clue how to coach. So I really dove deep into what coaching was all about. And I think that obviously even shines through to what I'm doing today. And then started teaching full time there. And they were looking for an answer to why we didn't have really good leadership in students. And so I said, well, let's start a class around leadership. So I received the E.E. Ford 
foundation grant and leadership. And we had $100,000 to build a curriculum around leadership. And I started doing some research around it. And then the following year, we actually started another course around poverty called Poverty 101, which was a multidisciplinary approach that we took. And that research led me to this global leadership institute in Little Rock, Arkansas, called the Clinton School of Public Service, which was started by President Clinton a couple of years before that. And uh, he wanted to start a master's program that wasn't necessarily public administration or public policy. It was more so focused on public service, which was the first of its kind. And I thought it was really interesting. And I started digging into the into the curriculum and really liked some of it and sort of took some of it for myself and used it for my class. And then a year later, the admissions director there said, you should apply here. And I said, well, that sounds cool. I mean, I know I want more education, but I don't want to just jump through the hoops to get my master's degree. But this sounds really cool. And they had a lot of field work. About 60 percent of the work was in the field. And so I applied and got in much to my surprise, because I was horrible at school, hated every bit of school, ah. uh, even getting my undergrad. I just it just traditional education wasn't for me, never has been. Uh, traditional recess has always been for me. <laughs> uh, tetherball, I can hang with the best at tetherball for sure. Oh, gosh. Okay. I've known a lot of this. I did not know that. You are on, Chad. Next time we're together, we're going to find a Okay. <laughs> I'm going to take you on. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> uh, are you right or left? I'm right. All right. So now I got something up on you already. Okay. Oh, so, wow. Okay. So, I'm practicing. So, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so, so that led to me going to Little Rock, Arkansas and pursuing my master's degree. And my wife was cool with that. And she came and the two chocolate labs came. And so we made our home in Little Rock from 2008 to 2011. And during that time, I started my own sports and public service series where I brought in athletes to come in and talk about what they were doing in the community. Uh, professional athletes. I brought in Tiki Barber and Warwick Dunn and Myron Roll. And we did a mini documentary with Yao Ming and Tracy McGrady. So the Clinton School has a pretty robust speaker series, uh, over 100 speakers a year. But I was really curious about the sports sector, especially African-American males and what they were doing in their communities to make an impact, not necessarily what they were doing on fourth and one or how many points they scored in a game. Uh, And this goes back you know, quite a bit of ways for me. You know, the first time I ever heard the N word was in Montgomery, Alabama, when I was in third grade. And the only thing I think that I could process was I've never heard that word used for any of my friends. And I had a lot of friends that were black because the the military is the most diverse organization in the world. And when your dad's the chaplain, everybody comes to the chapel and we knew everybody. And I just knew that my best friend's name was James and we nicknamed him Papa and he was black and we ruled recess together. But I never heard him called an N word. I never even heard any of my other friends that were black called the N word. And so I think that stuck with me even subconsciously. And that's why I'm so big on black male achievement through the work that we do now. And so, you know, one of those guys that I came across was Dahani Jones and we hit it off. I ended up working with him for three years out of Cincinnati. He was a a middle linebacker for the Cincinnati Bengals at the time. We started a couple things in Cincinnati, a one-on-one interview show on the CBS affiliate. And then we started a bow tie organization where we created signature bow ties and design bow ties for different nonprofits around the country. And then I met a guy one night at a restaurant in Cincinnati, and uh, he said he was from uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas. And I thought, what? what? I'm going back and forth from Little Rock 
I know Arkansas pretty well. And he said, I'm really curious about education. I said, well, you know, I used to be a high school teacher and I'd love to get back in education, but I, I just don't know when the time will be right, but we'll see. And he said, well, I want you to think about this word noble. And so I, I remember just doing some research and there was a, a video on the Clinton School website where President Clinton's on there and it's a really impactful video and he's talking about his presidential library and this is when he dedicated it. I want people to come to this library, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, to see that public service is noble. And I was like, oh, that word. And so it resonated with me at a pretty high level then. And then the timing was right. And he sent me a text in November of 2012, said, let me know when you're ready for your next challenge. And I hit him back in two minutes, like, talk to me, I'm ready. And so we started having conversation around what this noble thing could be. And then I ended up adding the word impact to it because I started looking up just the word noble. You know, you know me well enough. I'm always looking for the meaning behind things. And absolutely. And when we when I put impact to it, it just had this ring. So we launched Noble Impact really in February of 2013. We had a couple ideas around some things, and, and this was from our chairman, who the guy that I met at the restaurant in Cincinnati. And one of his things, and I think that got him really thinking, was his son came home from school when he was in high school, and he and his dad were talking about the homework that he had to do, and, he's, and he pretty much said, I'm not going to do my homework. And his dad was like, well, why not? And he said, well, dad, if there's no purpose, there's no reason. And so that stuck with Steve and, and Steve thought, well, am I listening to the insights of, you know, an average high school kid that just doesn't want to do his homework or am I listening to the insights of a generation? And that's when we started having those conversations about, well, then how do we create purpose driven and relevant curriculum for high schoolers? And so we started in 2013 as a summer institute. It went really well well enough to where John Bacon at the time, who, who is still now is CEO of East End Public Charter Schools in downtown Little Rock, had 16 of his kids in our program. And he said, hey, I love this so much. Can you start a class? And I said, absolutely. So it went really well. We started with 24 kiddos. They were awesome uh, sophomores and juniors. And we were at this intersection of public service and entrepreneurship. So we partnered with um, the Office of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Walton College of Business in Fayetteville at the University of Arkansas, and then the Clinton School of Public Service to have this you know, nice higher ed situation where we had entrepreneurship and public service that were being, that were being focus areas for us. So the following year, we learned from that. But we also figured out that we're not reaching everyone. And we had done a pilot our first year. Actually, the first time we ever did Noble Impact was in a third grade classroom in Tampa, Florida, uh, second and third grade in the summer. And it went really well. And I was like, man, this works in elementary school. But we were already committed to the high school institute. And so we actually flirted with it in our first year at Eastham. And we did a third grade pilot. And they loved it. And they pitched their ideas at the end and pitched like, companies on how they would redesign their classroom. And, and it was during that, right. during that time, I think you pretty much launched the same time I launched. That's right. That's exactly right. We just started exchanging notes. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, to, just to add into to when you and I connected in your research, you'd somehow come across something about what I was doing and you reached out to me and we had a phone call and you and I were both so excited because this was actually in the, the world of progressive education. This was really early. And we were so excited to find someone 
who was so philosophically aligned. We were so on the same page. And it was years ago, whatever year that was. We were really early in this thought process. And sometimes I felt we were too early. I felt, yeah. I felt like, man, it's too hard to get traction uh, yeah. because people just don't believe in this stuff. Yeah. And you and I were approaching our start in very different places. You were working with public schools. I was inside an independent school, and there was no understanding, really, of what we were trying to do, and huge resistance. It, it was tough, so, which is added to why we were so excited about each other, right? No, absolutely, and I, and I think you, know, you bring up a good point because doing this type of work does vary from private to public to charter school education. And there has to be some sort of a door opening and leadership that's willing to take on new stuff. And the nice thing about working in NAIS or independent schools, you know, those schools have the flexibility to experiment and to bring on new ideas. Um, not that it's not that it's easy because it's still not right, because you now you're really under the gun because you have to prove yourself because um, yeah. you're answering to a lot of different people in private school, even uh, in a different capacity than you are in public school. So, you know, if you if you create something and you don't come through with it, you really look bad. You're exactly right. And the reason I started with Hawken is because I wanted to find an independent school that was committed to letting me experiment because you're right. Independent schools have more flexibility. On the other hand, the challenges are different, right? So in private schools, there are expectations about what academic performance looks like, about what an academic course should be like. It's this whole other set of cultural roadblocks. Now, in the last several years, I've been working with a lot of public schools, so I, I understand much better the differences. But the work itself, what's really interesting is kids are kids, and as we have in the education industry now, much more of a movement globally around this kind of education. Yeah. And just to just to capitalize on your kids or kids, you know, I think sometimes when you try to do new stuff and you try to and you're excited about something, the thing that gets in the way aren't the kids. The kids want it. It's the adults. Oh, yeah. It's the lack, There's no question. The lack of imagination from adults that are still really the only memories that we have of education is very traditional. So if you really want to shake it up, kids are going to love it for the majority of the time. But adults are the ones that are the first to press back, whether it be parents or administrators, teachers, etc. So it just makes me think, you know, that word innovation. And it always brings me back to the Harvard Business Review article, the innovators DNA, and those five discovery skills and association. Associating is the backbone of it. And then you have questioning, observing, networking, and experimenting. And you used experimenting in this the language when we first started. So, you know, that transition into where when we first started experimenting, and I think that's what you're talking about now, is what are we seeing now in the space, especially based on where we came from in 2013. But, it, but if you don't have those innovative mindsets, you're in a lot of trouble. Like you're not really going to be able to push the envelope too far before either, one, you get fired or two, hopefully the administrator starts to turn a little bit in regards to, oh, you know what, this stuff's working. Maybe I should get on board with this quote unquote change 
Absolutely. And so maybe we should just make our own little digital platform that rates leaders on their ability to innovate. And then we just fire the people that are below a certain threshold of innovation because they're screwing up kids' lives. Yeah, I'm all for that. And all right. I'll, I'll tell you, in the last four years, as I've been working now with other schools, public schools, charter schools, schools all over the world, what I have found is the starting point has to be leadership that has the will to make this happen. That has to be the starting point. Because if you don't have that, you're, you're going to be just beating your head against a wall and it's not going to happen. Absolutely. The one thing that that sticks out to me when you say that is then you have innovative teachers or educators that really want to make a difference that come in with all this energy and gusto and then you hit a brick wall if you don't have the innovative leader. Yeah. But when you do though, and this goes back to my first interview with Tiki Barber, he, he said this quote and it's my favorite quote now. He said, the ability to respond with enthusiasm to someone else's potential is almost as rare as talent itself. And Mm -hmm. so that, thought process is when I respond with enthusiasm to potential, whether that be in kids, teachers, et cetera, watch out because then you empower them. You validate their thoughts and their feelings and their actions. And then they, you know, for lack of better terminology, they have that wildfire, right? Yeah. Good word. Yeah. That that gets into (laughs) them. And then you just have to navigate and facilitate. Yeah. When you and I first connected, my head and heart were all full up and into the impact on the students of this kind of education. And in the last few years, what I've discovered, which is exactly to your point, is that that this work is about opening up the adults as well, the teachers and the administrators to the power of what's possible. And it's been really exciting to start really focusing so much on on the adults in the education space and seeing what's possible uh, when they have agency and they're empowered and they're able to experiment and draw on their strengths. I'm really interested, Chad, from you in hearing about what you've been experiencing lately with the schools and the districts you've been working with. Yeah, sure. And I just want to capitalize on some of the things that you said, if you don't mind. Um, Sure. Well, I just, you know, what comes to my mind and, and it's, we've done a lot of training over this past summer for a lot of different groups because now we're getting into this professional development space because people are finding out what we're doing and hearing the stories about how we're making an impact. And so now we are able to take it to the adults and maybe even take it to the decision makers. And I think that you're to your point, you know, you have to be able to influence the adults, the teachers, the parents, the administrators. And the only way to do that, at least through what we've experienced out of Arkansas is storytelling. I mean, we have to be able to tell the stories of the kiddos that are benefiting from this type curriculum. And we've said this type of, we've used that language a couple times now, um, because it's hard to describe sometimes, right? And, And in all reality, it's just empowering kids to be their own advocates, and whether, however they do that. But for us, we do it through three, you know, different skills. Um, and we see these 
three skills as paramount to what we do. And number one is listening. Number two is storytelling. And number three is reflecting. And then we say, and then we have our own purpose statement, right? The purpose of Noble Impact is to increase access and opportunity for every student we serve. And, you know, it's the last year, 2016, and I'm at South by Southwest. And I know, you know, at this point, you and I have had maybe maybe in the hundreds of conversations at this point, right, about man, you're doing good work, you're doing good work. And I thought, you know what, yes, this is it. Like, we're onto something big and, and kids love it. And so we, at this point, we have about, you know, over a thousand kids in our program from fifth grade to 12th grade. And we're starting different things. But then in 2016, I go to South by Southwest. I get there really early. It's a Sunday and it's about 2, 2 p.m. And um, I get there so early that they aren't giving out the name badges yet, right? Like, <laughs> so I go across the street, I think it's the Hilton across the street, and there's a huge restaurant downstairs, and it's only me in the entire in the entire restaurant. And I'm watching, there's a, like ESPN is playing, they got these flat screens, and there was a UFC fight the night before. And this guy pulls up to me three seats down, I'm sitting at the bar, and um, he said, oh, did you see that fight? And I'm like, yeah, actually I did. He said, are you a fighter? I'm like, no, no, I'm not a fighter. <laughs> Right. Like I was like, how is this the first question that I'm getting? And and I said, uh, I said, and he looked about my age, right? Like early forties. And I said, well, are you a fighter? You know? And he said, yeah, I love that stuff that MMA, UFC. And I'm like, oh, cool. And he said, well, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm here for, for South by Southwest education. He's like, oh, me too. I said, oh, cool. Um, he said, are you a speaker? I'm like, no, are you a speaker? He said, yeah, absolutely. I said, well, what are you speaking on? He said, uh, violence and compassion in K-12 and how it relates to neuroscience. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is some deep stuff. You know, I, I don't even know if I've really heard that type of language together. And I was looking for something easy, like curriculum development or something <laughs> of that nature. And I said, well, where are you from? And he said, Newtown, Connecticut. And I was like, Newtown, Connecticut. And I, I got my wheels turning. I thought, there's something there. And he and he could see me struggling with trying to connect the dots. He said, my six-year-old daughter was murdered in her first grade classroom at Sandy Hook. And I said, I can't even imagine. And he said, yeah, you can. He said, that's why you responded that way. And that's when I met Jeremy Richmond. And that changed the way that I thought about what we do, why we do it, how we do it, and who we even are in relation to all of this. And Jeremy scoots three seats down. We spend the next two hours together. Um, we share our lives. We share our stories. He tells me, shows me all these pictures of Abiel and tells me that when the Sandy Hook massacre happened, that just like a lot of other parents and even the community, like, what can we do? Well, it turns out Jeremy is a neuroscientist. His wife, Jennifer, is a scientist as well. And they started the Abiel Foundation uh, after Abiel was murdered, to focus on preventing violence and building compassion in communities, schools, and then this focus on neuroscience while also focusing on social-emotional learning. And so I just started engulfing myself. Like, I just started diving deep into all this language and realized that, you know what, we're not doing entrepreneurship. We're not doing public service. It is a byproduct of the social emotional work that we're doing on a daily basis with kiddos in Little Rock that um, and if you know anything about Little Rock, one of the things you do know, obviously, you know, 1957, Little Rock 9, there's significant history behind 
uh, desegregation. You know, there's a lot of history sure. there. There's a little, and there's still to this day a lot of pain. The school district itself was taken over by the state due to a quote unquote dysfunctional board, you know, at the time, and is still run by the state. So there's a lot of work we do that just can't be chalked up to the lean canvas and entrepreneurship, right? Those are tactics, right? Absolutely. So I, I end up, and I've had this for years, and I think it's getting better, but for years I've had the baggage that comes with what I call all this edgy jargon. You know, people want to put it in a box. Oh, is this, uh, this is that lean launchpad stuff. Yep. This is the, the design thinking stuff, or this is the entrepreneurship stuff. And it's like, no, it's a completely different approach to teaching and learning. And those are just tactics and tools that you use as you're doing this work. Absolutely. And, that, and that's what it is. Yeah. It's a toolkit. And, and, and those tools still need to be begin with compassion, right? Absolutely. And, and even like a design thing, it begins with empathy. It begin, And I like to use compassion a little bit more, especially now that um, we're so tight with the IBL Foundation. And now we've actually, I forget if I told you, but we've entered into a, a, an understanding, an MOU with the IBL Foundation, and they're our scientific research partner, and we're their education partner in, re, in regards to how do we know that we're really making a difference and making an impact in the lives of others. And Jeremy Richmond and the IBL Foundation are going to, uh, to be our scientific research partner going forward with all of our uh, curriculum which we believe is beneficial to the kids in our program because it's building their social emotional capacity. And so I think when we looked at the, when we look at the, the greatest entrepreneurs in the world, even today and, and years past, one of the things that they probably do have a lot in common is a high level of social emotional intelligence. And so even going back to the new masters, what is the, the new grading system that, that you're dealing with? The mastery transcripts. Yeah, so, the mastery transcripts. Like, I mean, it's not about, it's not only about ACT and SAT. It's so much more. Actually, it's not at all about ACT or SAT. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's about who these kids are. So, you know, that's what I like about talking with you and, and know what you're doing and what I'm doing. And I think we're both pushing in the direction of sustainable and transformational change as opposed to transactional change, right? Like, that's exactly right. So we're looking yep. for that transformation. And I think, you know, there's something that tells me we're on the right path now, especially with our social emotional work. And I know the social emotional is buzzwords today, but I'm just sort of curious, like how we're building social emotional capacity in kids. And I think to your point and to what you're doing is you're, you're building social emotional capacity through the activities of what wildfire brings to the table. Absolutely. And when it comes to measuring, it's about measuring growth yep. in social emotional capacity and skills and that's really the point. And it's very personal. The whole transaction-based system of education that we've built over the last century is proven time and time again, and now more than ever, to be failing humanity and the planet. And I know that sounds really melodramatic, but I think that's, that's what people are realizing that it, that this work, it's Maria Montessori, I keep quoting her because it's the best way I know how to put it, is what she said. Uh, the, the path to world peace is education. I believe that. Yeah, and you know, 
you said, you know, what are you seeing in the districts and who you're working with? And so this year was our first year to really branch out of E-STEM in a big way. So we really piloted a lot of our curriculum at E-STEM and John Bacon gave us the, the flexibility and the leadership to do that, right, from an innovative perspective. And so now we're in uh, the Hope School District in Arkansas. We're in the Jacksonville, uh, in Jacksonville High School. We're in Baseline Academy, um, which is an elementary school. We're in Sheridan High School. And so now we're getting into that public realm as well. And so we're going to be seeing a lot of a lot of stories happen. And, you know, you know, I like to use Twitter for that kind of stuff. Right. Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, because we have to tell these stories. And if we're not telling the stories, then we actually don't know uh, how this stuff is affecting kids teachers, students, administrators, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm really excited this year because we're going to learn a ton. And I forget if I told you, but there's a film coming out on Netflix called Teach Us All. And we're in that film, but highlighted in that film is Baseline Academy. And it comes out on Netflix on September 25th. And Ava DuVernay, her production company um, acquired it. And it's to mark the 60 years after the Little Rock Nine in 1957. So it's now mm. 60 years later. So what does education look like now? Equity in education. And I think in all reality, Doris, that's what we're trying to do, right? Yeah. You, you and I are trying to have a bigger play in transformational education, taking kids from victims to victors or trauma to triumph and trying to, to decrease the drama and increase the empowerment where we believe kids can thrive. And we might do it a little bit differently, but in all reality, the philosophy and the motivation and intent is the same. And I think that's why, well, it's why I like talking to you. So Yeah, well, and ditto, back at you. And I'm so excited about and proud of the work that you do, Chad. I appreciate so, that. Yeah, and so, you know, we're in our, I don't know, third, fourth, eighth chapter of this. And it'll be <laughs> fun to see what our next chapter looks like, won't it? Absolutely. We got to keep building, got to keep writing those chapters. And That's actually, right. and just get out of the way and allow students to write those chapters. That's right. You got it. Thank you so much for talking today, Chad. Thank you. I appreciate your time as well. If you want to hear more podcasts like this or learn about the Corda Method, visit our website at wildfire-education.org.